Hebrews 2020, we see Jesus, increment 159. We'll be going to Hebrews 6, but also to a couple passages in Hebrews 11, and maybe take a look again at Romans 4, but we'll see. Let's open with prayer. Father, we thank you for opening a door that no man can shut, an opportunity that we take advantage of right now to listen to your word and to be among those and be united with those who have believed your word. Thank you that we are in the company of saints who by faith have gained your approval and grant us the grace to strive for your approval in the final analysis. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Genesis 15, 5, first of all, a verse of great importance having to do once again with Abraham. But first I want to give sort of a title of sorts because this is going to figure prominently. The Oath Dash Fortified The Oath Fortified Promise. It's one thing to be a promise, and that's enough when God promises, but it's another thing when it's an oath fortified promise. We're moving up to a passage of Scripture in which we are going to learn about two immutable things, two things that can't change, two things that are not even capable of changing. And those two things are, and I'll give it away in advance and then come up to it, an oath-fortified promise given to Abraham and an oath-fortified oracle spoken to Jesus Christ. By these two things, we have a strong hope, a strong, we have powerful refuge and hope as an anchor because it's anchored in two immutable, unchangeable things, which in turn are anchored in the very essence of God. Genesis 15, 5, God, speaking of God, took Abraham outside and said, Look at the sky and count the stars, if you are able to count them. Now, there's a couple ways of looking at this, and I'm going to look at it in terms of the innumerability of the stars. He said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Here's something for you to think about. Was he being exaggerating? Was he exaggerating? Was it a poetic exaggeration, which God is able to do and does from time to time? I don't know. Now, second thing I want to say is this. A hagiography. You ever hear that before? Hagiography? Uh, sometimes we read them. When I was a kid, we used to read about the lives of the saints, and they were hagiographies because the saints were all good and all holy, and there was nothing included in those stories that would intimate that maybe they're also sinners. And so a hagiography, H-A-G-I-O, we get the word, the, the Greek word hagios means holy or set apart, but hagiography, hagiography, graphos, writing, hagio, holy, holy writing. A hagiography or hagiography is a biography or a biographical sketch of an historic or a beloved cultural icon 
or a historical personage which omits their shortcomings and sins and failures. Hagiography borders on legend. It seems, now I want to put that word forward, it seems that the biological sketches of Abraham in Romans 4, 17 to 22, Hebrews 6, 13 to, 4, to 15, where we're going today, Hebrews 11, 8 through 12, and Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19, it seems that they are hagiographical. In Romans 4, 17 to 22, for example, Abraham is portrayed like this. This is my translation, which we developed from reading Romans with a light on a while ago. And this reads like this. I'm reading 417 to 22 of Romans. For beyond the hope, that's in quotes, that was presented to his eyes empirically, and that means essentially beyond, beyond hopelessness or against hopelessness, Abraham still hoped and believed that he would become the father of many nations. And a reference there to Genesis 17:5. According to this word that was spoken to him, so shall your seed be. We just cited the verse that's the source of that in Genesis 15:5. Abraham carefully considered his own body, already dead, being about 100 years old, that means sexually dead, and the deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in faithful trust. He not only did not doubt the promise of God, but being strengthened in faith, he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. For this reason, his faithful trust was assessed by God to be rectitude, that which we called throughout Romans, God-approved livingness, and I stand by that translation. So notice that in Romans 4.20 to 21, Abraham, it says, didn't waver in unbelief regarding God's promise, but he was strengthened in his faith. You can compare that with Hebrews 11.34. There was a whole group of people that were strengthened in faith and out of weakness were made strong. Abraham's one of them. Giving glory to God because he was fully convinced, the aorist passive participial form of pleroforeo, incidentally, that which God had promised he's able also to do. He was fully convinced. And that's why his faith was counted to him as righteousness, as some translations misleadingly put it. But as God's word translation has it, according to its probable sense, I think, that is why his faith was regarded as God's approval of him. That's what's being dealt with in Romans. It's not saying that personal faith results in justification, but that faith is an approved livingness and way of being on the part of God's approval. In the next paragraph of the Hebrews homily, after Hebrews 6.12 that we just passed through, and the PT's explicit desire that his readers not become lazy, but become imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, Abraham once again becomes the first exemplar whose pattern of faith and patience is worthy of copying. He's portrayed as one who receives great blessing and multiplication through faith and patience and through maintaining hope despite all contrary empirical evidence. 
Romans 4, 17 to 18. Now here's Hebrews 6, 13 through 15, which is the next little chunk of scripture that we're getting into. For when he made a promise to Abraham, God, having no one greater to swear by, swore by himself, saying, Most certainly I will bless you, and I will greatly multiply you. And so, having waited patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. Now, we have inherited the promise in 6.12. We have obtained the promise here or received the promise elsewhere and here. But this is an almost direct quote of Genesis 22.17, if you're looking at verses, and I think you should to get the full benefit of these messages. It's what God had promised Abraham. In Genesis 22.16, God preceded this promise with an oath, hence today's title, The Oath Fortified Promise. By fortifying the promise with an oath, he made, he made Abraham's hope all the more sure and certain. Moreover, this promise was amplified in Genesis 22:18, in which God said, quote, listen to this, all the nations of the earth will be blessed in your seed. There, the word for seed, spermati, S-P-E-R-M-A-T-I, we get the word sperm from it, spermati, for seed is singular. Paul makes a lot of this in Galatians, emphasizing in Galatians 3.16 that seed is singular in this promise in Genesis 15.5 and elsewhere, and that the seed is Christ. This is a crucial part of the anatomy of hope, incidentally. In Hebrews 6.13, the PT revitalizes the oath concept that he had introduced in his quote of Psalm 95.11. Remember that? Septuagint Psalm 94.11 and 3.11. Did we spend too much time on it? Well, if you forgot about it, we didn't. And we didn't spend enough time in it. But in Hebrews 3.11, God swore an oath that the Israelites who disobeyed his voice through his servant Moses in the desert would not enter into God's rest. God swore it. Here in Hebrews 6.13-14, in the quotation of Genesis 22.17, however, God swears an oath by himself that he will bless Abraham indeed with a blessing that will be to all the nations in his seed. God will never positively reward disobedience, though he uses people's disobedience to fulfill his own purpose and his own providence. But he always rewards faith obedience. He has rewarded all the nations through the obedience of Abraham and all the human race with the obedience of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham, who was in Isaac when Isaac, whose name means laughter, was conceived and born. When he was offered and resurrected from the dead, Figuratively speaking, Isaac was offered and resurrected from the dead. Figuratively speaking, according to the Hebrews writer, Abraham's faithful obedience was an early example of the faith of which Jesus is the author and finisher. Now look at Hebrews 6.15 now. 
Hebrews 6.15. And so, having waited patiently, most of life is waiting, having waited patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. Question. What did God promise Abraham? Answer. An innumerable seed. Uncountable descendants. Now the seed, as Paul said, is singular though. So we have the juxtaposition of one and an infinite number. In Christ, we have one man, Christ Jesus, but we also have an infinite number of redeemed. Could it be all of humanity? We could engage in some speculation here, but it's not. Though it might be profitable, it's not necessary at this point. So, what did God promise Abraham? An innumerable seed. Now, the seed, as Paul said, is singular in Galatians 3.16. It speaks of one Christ Jesus. Galatians 3.16. There's another 3.16, just as important as John 3.16. Christ is one. But as the seed, he is also called innumerable. In this one seed, therefore, all of humanity, not only since Abraham, but since Adam, will be made alive. Let me say that again. In this one seed, Christ, all of humanity not only since Abraham and Sarah, but since Adam and Eve will be made alive. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Now, why does it say that Abraham obtained the promise only after waiting patiently? There's another good question. After waiting patiently by faith. Why only after waiting patiently, that is, for a long time, by faith? Answer, because the promise was Isaac, whom Abraham obtained not by the action of human flesh, but by the enactment of a divine promise long after Abraham and Sarah were humanly able to reproduce. Now what blows my mind even more than Abraham was, was made sexually productive and virile at age 100 without the use of Viagra, the more amazing thing is that he was still producing children and sexually performing up until he was 175. That might make some of you men out there want to live longer. I don't know. In a visit to Abraham, the Lord said, I will certainly return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Genesis 18.10. This is when Abraham was 99, and Sarah was about 90 years old. The son, Isaac, was not the promised seed. But the seed would be in 
Isaac. In Isaac, your seed will be called, says Genesis 21.12. Again, the seed is Christ. He is the one in whom all the nations will be blessed, not only forward from Abraham and Sarah to the end of the age, but also backward to Adam and Eve. In this seed, all the nations will be blessed, because in Christ all will be made alive with eternal life to live gloriously and contemporaneously in future world. Consider Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. We're going to hit it later down the road, hopefully, in our exposition. But here it is in Hebrews 11, 8 through 12. My translation from the Greek text, which is why it takes a little while to get these messages ready. By faith. That's a phrase used, piste, P-I-S-T-E-I, 18 times in Hebrews 11. By faith, Abraham, when he was called obeyed and went out to a place which he was about to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. Genesis 12, 1 1 through 4. By faith, he lived as an immigrant in a land of promise, residing in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. That oath fortified promise. For he was waiting for the city. That's a subject coming up. I call that city Oronopolis. He was waiting for, waiting for the city. Most of life is waiting. Waiting for the city. Which, and to give the sense, I say, unlike the tents that he had, that he and his family lived in in this world, has foundations. He was waiting for a city which, unlike the tents he and his family lived in in this world, has foundations. If, if Abraham were alive today, he would be living in a trailer, and his whole family would be living in a trailer park, and they would move when God led them to move. And they lived as immigrants in a promised land while they waited for a city that has foundations unlike the homes they were living in that were foundationless, whose architect and builder is God, that city. By this selfsame faith, says Hebrews 11.11, Abraham received potency to procreate even though he was past age and Sarah was incapable of bearing children. And so from one man, I love that phrase, and so from one man, one man, af, A-P-H, enos, E-N-O-S, from one man, af, enos, and this one man, as good as dead, it's not as good as The one man, Jesus Christ, who was dead, and from that one man who died, and yea, who is also risen and ascended, all of humanity is summed up. But this one man, as good as dead, came progeny as innumerable. I love this word. I love it. You get to love the Greek 
even though I'm certainly not an expert in it. I love the Greek words. And the word is A-N-A-N-A and then R-I-T-H-M-A-T-O-S. Anarithmetos. Anarithmetos. That's where we get arithmetic. Anarithmetos. I almost have the word arithmetic in there. Without arithmetic. Uncountable. Anarithmetos. From one. And anarithmetos. A, a progeny or a posterity as innumerable as the stars of heaven and as countless as the grains of sand by the shore of the sea. Literally the lip of the sea, which is the beach of the sea. Hebrews 11.12 is remarkable for many reasons, not least of which, and incidentally, next week, certain people I know and love will be on a beach, and I would encourage them as something to do, count the grains of sand on the beach that you're going to, and that will, I promise you, if you do that, it will prolong your stay. So, Hebrew, now, the stars of the sky speaks of what? The heavens. The sands of the sea what speaks of what? The earth. In Jesus Christ, everything in heaven and on earth will be reconciled, gathered up into one. Heaven and earth, heaven and earth, earth and heaven, Star, sand, grains, and stars, earth and heaven. Hebrews 11.12 is remarkable for many reasons, not least of which is the connectedness between one man and an innumerable number of people. From one, that is Abraham, an innumerable company of blessed humanity arises just as from one Jesus Christ comes justification and life for all of humanity. William L. Lane, I think maybe he's edging out most of the other commentaries I'm reading, reading him and Atridge and also Coaster and others. But William L. Lane comments eloquently on the subject of the innumerable posterity of Abraham. I love his wording, too. Lane says this, quote, The conception of a son is now set within the larger context of the fulfillment of the promise of innumerable posterity. Genesis 12, 2, 15, 5, and 22, 17. The reliability of God is underscored in the contrast between the singularity of Abraham, af enos, from this one man, and I love this phrasing, the unimaginable plurality of his physical descendants in accordance with the divine promise. I would only add one little thing to that, in accordance with the oath-fortified divine promise. And again, Lane says this a page later in his second volume on Hebrews, connecting, and this blew me away too because I was reading a little bit ahead, he's connecting Hebrews 6.13 to 15 with Hebrews 11, 11, and 12, which is just exactly what we are doing in this message. He says, quote, The related statements in verses 11 and 12 of Hebrews 11 belong thematically with the exposition presented in 6.13 to 15. 
Both passages focus attention upon God as the giver of the promise and identity and identify rather the content of the promise of a large posterity. In 613 to 15, our passage, Abraham was cited as an illustration of those who through faith and steadfast endurance inherit the promises, 612. Emphasis was placed especially on the necessity of steadfast endurance, 615. The tenor of the argument is restated in verses 11 and 12 in a more direct way. But the, here the emphasis, that is in Hebrews 11, 11, and 12, here the emphasis is placed upon the role that faith plays in acting upon the promise. What Abraham received, according to Hebrews 6.13, was the promise. Not the fulfillment of the promise. It is the precisely the element of fulfillment, however, which is dominant in verses 11 and 12. Now, we've reflected on the concept, and I remember it very well, of the innumerable company in Revelation 7-9 in our study of Rev the book. Our conclusion was that the innumerable company signifies the entirety of humanity as beneficiaries of the self-sacrifice of the Lamb. We've also considered that the 144,000 much misunderstood today in Revelation 7.4 and Revelation 14.1 are not just a literal number indicating an exclusive company, but rather the inclusively representative prolepsis of a universal community of redeemed humanity. In the same way, the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal and whom God reserved for himself in the days of Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel and their apostasy was representative, inclusively representative, of the whole of Israel who is to be saved. So you have to put Romans 11.4 with 11.26. And 11.32, God's intention to show mercy to all the nations, including Israel. The vision of the innumerable company is congruent with the incontrovertible truth of 1 Corinthians 15:22 For as in Adam all die even so in Christ shall all be made alive the innumerable company therefore the countless throng of people is the subject of our reflection again in Hebrews as it is in Rev the book for both Hebrews and Rev the book and Romans are apocalyptic revelations of the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ and the universally redemptive, rectifying and reconciling as well as restorative impact of the cross. And so our reflection again in Hebrews is precisely what was promised to Abraham. What was promised to him and fortified by a divine oath, was contained in Isaac, his son, his monogenes, he's called. Isaac is called Abraham's monogenes, his only son, his unique son. Abraham had other sons, but this is the only one that, in whose seed all the nations would be blessed. Isaac was the son. In Isaac shall your seed be called, as Genesis 21 12 says, God didn't overlook Ishmael 
God doesn't stigmatize children born out of wedlock, nor their mothers. Never does, never has, never will. Even though religious, self-righteous, B-A-S-T-A-R-D-S, would do so. He promised Hagar that her son Ishmael would be made into a great nation who would also have innumerable descendants. So, we'll get into that a little more down the road. Maybe we have in the past. Monogenes. It says in Hebrews 11:17. So what was promised to Abraham and fortified by divine oath was contained in Isaac, his son, his monogenes. Hebrews 11:17, whom Abraham received after exercising faith and patience. Isaac, in that sense, was the promise that Abraham received after exercising faith and patience. Jesus, as our great archpriest, comprises all the innumerable stars of the night sky and all the grains of sand by the lip of the sea. In him, all that is in the heavens, represented by the stars of the sky, and all that is on earth, represented by the grains of sand of the seashore, are reconciled and gathered together, Ephesians 1.10 and Colossians 1.20. Jesus is the sum and the substance of all created and all uncreated reality. Jesus as priest forever. Now, look, please notice these things. I'm not just spitting out sentences. These are the prime real estate of Hebrews that I'm speaking of right now. Jesus is the sum and substance of all created and all of uncreated reality. And Jesus, as a priest forever by a divine oath-fortified oracle, Psalm 110.4, of Hebrews and 5.10, etc., is the personal and incarnate guarantee and guarantor of the oath-fortified promise to Abraham regarding innumerable descendants. The uncountable company is only outshined by the personal magnitude and majesty of the bright morning star, Revelation 22.16, confer with Numbers 24.17, that being Jesus Christ himself, who both comprises them and at the same time shines brightest of all. As the mediator of a better covenant than that, was, that which was issued at Sinai, Jesus is the guarantee that all of humanity will know the Lord from the least to the greatest and that they will all willingly do God's will and fulfill the gift of God's love, his own love, by loving God totally and by loving their neighbor as themselves. Here's a thesis for Hebrews. Faith is future world already with us and in us. The coming of faith, as he says in Galatians, remarkably, is the same as the coming of Christ. Galatians 3.23 and 25. Faith and Christ. Christ is in us as the hope of glory, as faith is in us as the assured of assurance of that hope for glory. We have this treasure in earthen throwaway pots called human bodies. Second Corinthians 4 7. I never saw a muscle and fitness magazine with a title on it, Throwaway Pots. Abraham obtained the son who was promised to him by God, a son and a male heir whom he would have with Sarah. What God had promised was Isaac. Abraham's son, 
But Abraham had already, now here's the question, here's something extraordinary that happens in, in Hebrews. But Abraham had already obtained the promise, in one sense, at the birth of Isaac, due to Isaac's supernatural conception in Sarah. So what does the pastor mean, the teaching pastor who wrote Hebrews? What's he mean when he says that Abraham received that which was promised him only after patiently waiting long after that? The, the point when Abraham received the promise or received Isaac, in whom the promised seed was going to be, was long after even he received Isaac the infant through a supernatural conception the only begotten son, or the monogenes, the unique son, born through a supernatural conception, was received by Abraham. But the total promise wasn't received by Abraham until many years later when he received Isaac in a different way, this time out of death and through resurrection, figuratively speaking. Now, some analysts of Hebrews and of the so-called Akedah, of the offering of Isaac, uh, some I think some Jewish as well as Gentile expositors say that Abraham actually drove the knife into Isaac and that he was lit literally resurrected from the dead. But the Hebrew writer thinks differently and he says it's figurative. The resurrection of uh, Isaac is figurative and therefore a type of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, what God had promised was Isaac, but Abraham only attained the promise at the birth, not only at the birth of Isaac due to Isaac's supernatural conception in Sarah, but he also received that which was promised after patiently waiting long after that. What the author means is that Abraham not only received Isaac through a supernatural conception, but also, figuratively speaking, from the dead by resurrection. This, again, is pointing to Jesus, who's not only just the firstborn, but also the firstborn from the dead. If you see Hebrews eleven seventeen and 19, in fact, let's just see it. Let's look at it. Let's consider Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19, my slightly expanded translation with bracketed references. By faith, Abraham, when put to the ultimate test, some might call that the evidence test, Genesis 22, 1 to 14, he who had received the promises, that means he received their initial fulfillment in Isaac, was offering up his unique son, who is the vault in which all the promises were. And it says his unique son is monogenes, which is, you can see also that word in Luke 7.12, Luke 8.42, Luke 9.38, where Jesus often resurrected the only child of certain people who had lost their children. But it's also in John 1.14, 1, 1.18, John 3.16 and 3.18, and 1 John 4.9, monogenes is a title for Jesus Christ, the unique Son of God. So, again, let's back up and start again. By faith, a term piste used 18 times in Hebrews, Abraham, when put to the ultimate test, he who was received the promises, there's a long hyphen read put in the English, and then we'd have an exclamation point at the end. He who had received the promises was offering up his unique son regarding whom it was said in verse 18, in Isaac shall your seed 
be called. So in Isaac, the seed would be called, and so go offer Isaac. What? That's the ultimate test of faith. But the faith that's being tested is resurrection faith. Why? Look at verse 19. He offered him up because he reasoned. That's counterintuitive reasoning, of course, by faith. Faith is always, almost always counterintuitive, but it's reasonable. Because he reasoned counterintuitively and by faith that God was able even to raise him from the dead. And figuratively speaking, that's how he did receive him. The word receive is komizo there. K-O-M-I-Z omega O. Omicron O, Omega O. K, Omega O, M, I, Z, Omega O. Kamidzo, a word for receive that's not only found here in Hebrews 11.19, but also in 10.36 and 10.39. So, and figuratively speaking, that's how he did receive him. So Abraham received Kamidzo. Isaac, listen carefully to this, because it's the gospel in figure or parable. Abraham received Isaac not just through a supernatural conception in Sarah, followed by a birth, but also through resurrection, so to speak, a foreshadowing of God the Father receiving Jesus from the dead after offering him as a sin sacrifice for all people for all time and after not sparing him, Romans 8.32. Here again we see that Abraham's faith was related to resurrection to God's ability to raise someone from the dead this too is our faith Romans 4:23 we believe not only that God is able to resurrect someone from the dead but that he has raised Jesus from the dead and with him Descendants as numerous as the stars of the celestial heavens. For this reason, this Jesus was delivered up for our sins and raised up for our justification. Romans 4.25. And that justification for which he was resurrected was not only of Abraham's physical progeny and all those who are his children by an imitation of his faith, but also of all the children of Adam, all of humankind, in Romans 5.18. So Abraham's obedience led to actions in his ultimate test, and that's what James speaks of in James 2. James, like Paul, and not unlike Paul, and James, like the author to Hebrews, speaks of Abraham being approved by the actions he took in faith. Not just saying he had faith, I have faith, but acting on faith. Abraham's obedience led to actions in his ultimate test, which testified to God's gospel about his monogenes, God's own unique son, the subject and object of Hebrews. Here's a principle. If we live in obedience to God, our lives and the course of our lives will be a reflection of the gospel of God about his son. The very course that our lives take will demonstrate and show and be a palette or a painting of the gospel of God about his son. Paul 
showed this in his own case in 2 Corinthians 4, 10 to 12. He too felt that he was being handed over to death so that the life of Jesus may be manifested to him. Jesus was handed over, paradidomi, to death. So Paul was handed over to death by his proclamation of the gospel to a world that just did not want to hear it. So the courses of the lives of people who function in biblical faith obedience are a palette upon which God paints a picture of the gospel of his son. In Paul's case, the apostle's obedience to proclaim the gospel led to his being handed over to death on a daily basis, as 1 Corinthians 4.9 says, in 1 Corinthians 15.32, in 2 Corinthians 4.10 and 4.12. And to an experience of the resurrected life of Jesus being manifested in his mortal body in 2 Corinthians 4.11 compared with Philippians 1.20 and even 1.21. Christ was magnified in Paul's body, both in Paul's life and in Paul's death. This is the heritage of people of biblical faith. Notably, none of Abraham's detours in unbelief, this is getting back to the hagiography, was, were the chronicles of Abraham in the New Testament hagiographical? Did they skip over his shortcomings? Because when you read he didn't stagger in unbelief, I read that he staggered in unbelief. Now let me show you what I mean here. It's not a contradiction. Notably, none of Abraham's detours in unbelief or other personal shortcomings are highlighted or even mentioned in the Reader's Digest of Romans 4 and of Hebrews 6 and Hebrews 11, all of which we've read. In contrast to this, the lengthy Genesis account of Abraham's life unapologetically chronicles Abraham's failures, detours, distractions, and sins. Notable among these detours are his unbelief, which he expressed by having sexual relations with Hagar, the Egyptian servant girl of Sarah, to bring about the divinely promised heir. He did this not only in unbelief, but by a failure of leadership when he followed the lead of Sarah's skeptical suggestion. In that episode of Abraham's life, I'll tell you this right now, and I know this isn't popular, but men get in a whole hell of a lot of trouble when they fail to lead and when in their refusal to lead, they follow the lead of someone that shouldn't be in the lead at the moment. Sometimes that's their wife. Okay, there's also times when God said, at least one time, God said to Abraham, listen to the woman this time. So, you can call... Go ahead and call me what? I don't know what you're called if you actually talk about leadership by men today, but I don't care what you call me. You can call me every name in the book today uh, and end with phobic. I don't give a damn what you think or what this world thinks or what this country thinks or what politicians think or what deceived Marxist, socialist, woke people think of me. I don't care. Tell me that I'm all the things you hate, and I'll say, yeah, I guess I am. Now, 
Men get in a lot of trouble when they fail to take up leadership and when they relinquish leadership to others. Presidents get in trouble when they fail to take leadership and act catatonically on the stupid suggestions of untaught and unstable individuals. I almost said females. <laughs> what do you know? But anyways, that would throw me back, way back to the 1950s when we were all gender-challenged people. Now, Abraham got in trouble. Followed Sarah's suggestion. That caused a whole lot of problem between Ishmael and Isaac, for example, and a whole lot of trouble in Abraham's house, to say the least. He did this, followed this suggestion, not only in unbelief, but by a failure of leadership when he followed the lead of Sarah out of fellowship. In that episode of Abraham's life, his faithful trust certainly weakened in apparent contradiction to Romans 4.19. I said apparent contradiction. So there's a contradiction between the Genesis account and the account given in Romans 4 and in the accounts in Hebrews 6.13 to 15 and 11.8 to 12 and 17 to 19. Let me ask, let's put it in a question. Is there a contradiction between the Genesis account and the account given in Romans 4 and the accounts in 6.13 of Hebrews to 15 and 11.8 to 12 and 17 to 19? Are there New Testament accounts, are these New Testament accounts merely legends because they appear to skip over all of Abraham's faults? Are they simply sanitized hagiographies? In answering these questions, I will answer no. These accounts are neither contradictory to the files on Abraham in Genesis, nor are they merely hagiographical accounts or revisions of history to make Abraham look good. Instead, the accounts in Romans and Hebrews simply concern themselves with Abraham, listen to the phrase, in the final analysis. In the final analysis, after all those detours and shortcomings and even sins, beyond the hope, that really means against hopelessness, and I'm dealing with Romans 4.18 to 22 again, beyond hope, or hopelessness that's presented in his eyes empirically, to his eyes empirically, Abraham still hoped and believed that he would become the father of many nations according to this word that was spoken to him. So shall your seed be. Abraham carefully considered his own body, already dead, being about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb without weakening in faithful trust, he not only did not doubt the promise of God, but being strengthened in faith, he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that what God had promised, he was also able to do. For this reason, his faithful trust was assessed by God to be rectitude or God-approved livingness. Romans 4, 18 to 22. So in closing, I'll say this. That's true of Abraham. 
in the final analysis, regardless of his former failures, which the Bible does not apologize for and which the Bible clearly states. The same will be true of us, though. At the evaluation, God will assess what we are in the final analysis. He's not going to pull out a jack chick, this was your life tract. Well done, good and faithful servant. Will be said by the Lord, not to people who never failed but to people who recovered from their failures and went on to be faithful. We should all take heart from the biography of Abraham, therefore, for despite his failures, he ended up with the emphatic and enthusiastic approval of God in the final analysis. Or should I even dare to say this hackneyed phrase at the end of the day? And it's the end of this message. And so, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to receive gentle exhortation from the word of truth and gentle pushes forward by the spirit of grace. And may we make the most of what we heard today by continuing in faith and patience. In Jesus' name, amen.